Amen. Take your Bibles and go to Revelation 11 if you aren't already there as we examine this wonderful chapter, our next chapter in this glorious book. As you're turning there, just a couple things before I pray and dig into the text. I want to remind you that on December the 4th, we are beginning our Christmas offering. One of the traditions here at our church is uh, using our collective generosity to move the needle on unreached people groups. That's taking place, really important offering this year with Radical to try and move the needle um, in Southeast Asia. Secondly, we have the Christmas concert that's coming up on December 8th through the 10th, and um, this is a phenomenal opportunity for you as a church. Invite someone to come who won't normally come on a Sunday morning service. Think of it as step one of two and three. Every year I meet people who join our church, and the first place that they came was Christmas concerts, so please use that as an opportunity. Third, I want to thank you uh, for last Sunday evening. We had, I think, a record attendance at our congregational meeting. Uh, so we had 700 people who were there. And I'm pleased to tell you that all of the things that were being considered by the congregation were passed, including 11 elders, six of whom are new, uh, 83 new members, 28 new, uh, deacons, 17 of those who are new. The reason why deacons and elders matter, elders matter for governance, deacons matter like today after the service, there's a gathering of our deacons and uh, some of our widows in our church. And uh, our widows matter to us. I trust that they matter to you. And one of the ways that our deacons service as a church is be sure that our widows are well cared for. So that's happening today. So it's really, really important. We're grateful for that ministry and then finally, if you've noticed, uh, I have at least, Sunday morning has felt a little more full around here, and uh, our lead executive pastor, Paul Spilker, told me, that's because it is full. Uh, he informed me, and I'm pleased to tell you, numbers aren't everything, there's something, but last couple of weeks we've been averaging 3,300 people. We are back to numbers pre-COVID at College Park Church. Really grateful for that, praise God. So when you see an usher bringing somebody who is uh, maybe a little late into the service, don't be judgy, just move. Uh, or uh, let the usher know, hey, I got three seats over here. You know, do like a Wall Street floor thing. I got three here and, and uh, help get people into their seats. Some people, folks are dropping off pa uh, kids and things of that sort. And uh, also both of our services are relatively full. This one more full than the second one. So you're more than welcome to not come to this service and come to the second. And then you might wonder, will we ever go back to three services? And the answer would be, over my dead body. <laughs> Unless, of course, the elders required it, then I would be <laughs> a submissive lead pastor over my dead body. All kidding aside, we have donuts afterwards. Why does this connect? It connects because what happens in the atrium, quite frankly, is as important as what happens in here. So one of the things that COVID taught us is the relational bonds amongst our church are really, really important. So I want to encourage you, as you receive the word, as you sing today, realize that ministry doesn't just happen inside here, but also happens in the atrium, a really, really important part of everything that we do together. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Oh God, before us today is Revelation chapter 11, a very important and very technical text. And so we pray that you would help us to understand what's here. We pray that our hearts would beat with the central message of this text. Help us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, I heard Ray Ortland say something that was profound and moving 
I think he's right. He said this, I've never met anyone suffering from too much encouragement in Christ. I've never met anybody suffering from too much encouragement in Christ. Ray Ortland is attempting there to elevate the value that we place on helping one another keep perspective. In this way, encouragement is simply laying something hopeful alongside the challenging realities of life. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. That's what you do when you engage in conversation with a fellow church member. We encourage one another in the Lord. You see, discouragement saps our energy. Some of you are here today and you're exhausted and you don't need a vacation. You don't need rest. Your heart is broken and it's exhausting. And you've made a really good decision to come to church. Discouragement blurs our spiritual vision. It can result in a cascading effect of negativity. You can find yourself unusually down about people and church and life. When you're discouraged, it's easier to be suspicious of people, to believe the worst about everything, to even fall into temptation, and even to struggle with unbelief. It's no wonder that the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 10. Would you read this aloud with me? And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As the great day draws near, as the return of Jesus draws near, Hebrews tells us that we need more encouragement, not less. Not less. There's some of you today that the reason God has you here is you need a soul reorientation. You need to be encouraged about what is really true in the midst of an environment in your life and in your world of all kinds of things that are very painful and hard. Today, as we look at Revelation chapter 11, we're going to see some encouragement. Now, today is the 12th message in our series on the book of Revelation, and it's the conclusion to our second subsection series called The Victor, and we're going to pause until the beginning of next year to continue our study. We'll pick it back up on January the 8th. Next Sunday, we're going to begin our Advent series, which will be about the Psalms of Ascent, called Psalms for the Journey. There were a series of psalms that God's people sang when they were making their way up to the temple, and those are the psalms, Psalms for the Journey, that will be our text from now all the way through Christmas. 
In chapter 11 of Revelation, we see the thematic extension of chapter 10, where we learned about an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And the focus, if you remember last week, was on John's experience in eating the little scroll that was sweet and then it was bitter. And I suggested to you that normal Christian living involves embracing hopeful confliction. Chapter 11 extends this concept, this interlude even further by drawing our attention to the way in which God passionately protects the witness of his glory. God protects the witness of his glory. So you could summarize the entire theme for this sermon with these words, God powerfully preserves the witness of his kingdom. God has a message for the world and God is more passionate about that message than you and I can ever imagine and he is going to preserve his witness to this kingdom. In other words, as commentator James Hamilton writes, he says, God will protect his people against all satanic opposition, and they will proclaim the gospel until the kingdom comes. God will protect his people against all satanic opposition, and they will proclaim the gospel until the kingdom comes. This text shows us what that looks like. Revelation 11 is a technical text. Don't miss the trees for the forest or the forest for the trees. See the holistic picture. It's a text that meant, it's meant to encourage you, to embolden you, to motivate you if you're a Christian. And today we're gonna see that through two points. Point number one, the protected witness, and two, the unstoppable kingdom. The protected witness, and the unstoppable kingdom. First, the protected witness in verses one through 13. Verses one through 13 are complicated verses. They're full of imagery. And there's a lot of different ways to interpret the symbols that we're going to see here and try to draw conclusions as to exactly what they represent. But the overall message of encouragement in this text ends up being the same. Namely, that God protects his witness in the world. So the text begins with a new instruction to John in verse one. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. John is given this instruction to measure the temple. And once again, we find a very fascinating parallel between the book of Revelation and the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 40 through 42 records that Ezekiel was taken on a tour of a new temple. In Ezekiel chapter 10, the rebellion of God's people caused the glory of God to depart from the temple but in Ezekiel 40, a new temple is built and it's filled once again with the glory of God and the presence of God. And in Ezekiel 46 through 47, fascinatingly, there's even a river that flows from the new temple, which is remarkably similar to what we find in Revelation 22. 
So there are unique connections here between Ezekiel and Revelation. In the same way that in Revelation, John is called to measure the temple, so too Ezekiel witnesses the measuring of the new temple. Look at the text on the screen. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. He brought me there. Behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And behold, there was a wall and all around the outside of the temple area and the length of the measuring reed in a man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed, and the height, one reed. And we don't have time to go through all of what Ezekiel identifies through chapters 40 through 42, because it's quite repetitive as Ezekiel is taken on this tour, and they keep measuring all kinds of things around the temple, storerooms, and the walls, and the temple proper, and the holies, the holy of holies, and the holy place. And throughout those chapters, this measuring continues until the glory of God gloriously returns in Ezekiel 43. And so it seems that the measuring of the temple in Ezekiel is connected to the divine plan of God. In other words, listen carefully, the measuring of the temple is intended to send a message about the certainty of God's plan. There are some times that we measure things not just because we want to know how tall or wide they are, but because there's a bigger story being told. Let me give you an example. How many of you, moms or dads or grandmas or grandpas, have in your house or used to have in your house a board upon which you measured your children's height, recorded it, and now are beginning to record your grandchildren's height. Do any of you have that board? My parents had that board in our basement, and every year at our birthdays, we would go down, and my dad would put a ruler on top of our heads, and we would kind of try and tip up just a little bit, and he would record our height and the particular date. And that board, I would see it often in their basement, and it had much more symbolism than it did just our actual heights. In fact, I could show you on that board, actually when they moved, what they did is they transposed that board because actually it was on a frame of a door post. They couldn't remove the door post. They just transposed it and then took the board with them. Now, why would they do that? Because the measuring of the heights of children and grandchildren was much more than their actual heights. For example, I could show you, you may not know this, but in my freshman year of high school, I was one of the shortest kids in my class. And between my sophomore and junior and senior year, I grew like two to three inches a summer. It hurt, hurt bad. And so when I see the gap in the growth between my sophomore and junior and junior and senior year, I don't just see three inches of growth in a year, I see knee pain is what I see. Right? And then when my kids went to grandma and grandpa's house, it was their birthday, they would scratch their height and we'd begin to see there and where they were and the little comparison thing that's happening. Oh, when your dad was this old, he was this height, when you're this height. 
And what's happening there is not just simply a comparison of height. It's a historical marker of families and history and growth. And that's why my parents took the board with them. So it's not just about height. There's something else that's communicated in the measuring. Do you understand? That's what's happening here. In Revelation chapter 11, John is told to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there, but not to measure the court outside the temple. Now, this presents an interpretive challenge because there are some who take this temple to be a literal temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. There are others who see it as a spiritual symbol for God's people. And they point to the fact that he's told to not only measure the the temple, but he's also told to measure, quote, those who worship there. So whether one takes it figuratively or literally, the measuring communicates the same thing. And it's this, a connection to the intentional plan of God as it relates to his people. The focus isn't on the measurements of the temple. The focus is on the fact that God has a very specific plan for the accomplishment of redemption. Notice that this measurement is not without conflict. The outside of the court isn't measured because it's a place of destruction. Interestingly, we have a reference here to 42 months. He says, they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Those also are 42 months clothed in sackcloth. 42 months, 1,260 days. Some take this to be a symbol for the time between Christ's ascension and his return. So they see 42 months, 1,260 days as a symbolic representation of time. Others take this date, these days and these months, more literally to refer to the halfway point in the great tribulation. So again, one of the challenges in the book of Revelation is knowing which symbols to take literally and which to take figuratively. Verse three highlights the emergence of two witnesses who will prophesy during these 1,260 days while they're clothed in sackcloth, representing mourning and repentance. And it wouldn't surprise you to learn that scholars differ on who these two witnesses are. Do you sense a pattern? One view sees these two witnesses as representative of the church, that they're not two literal people, but rather they're simply representative of the church's witness. Others see these as two literal figures like Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration, but whose physical presence represents something more, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. The point of the two witnesses regardless is having the confirmation and the validity of two witnesses as to the truthfulness as to what's being suggested and communicated. Here we have these two witnesses and what's more, they're described with four images from the Old Testament in verses four through six. Verse four, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Verse five, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. 
They have the power, verse six, to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as they desire. These references fit well with Old Testament prophets and their ministries. For example, in Zechariah 4, when the exiled people return to rebuild the temple, they do so under Joshua and Zerubbabel, who are referred to as two olive trees. The fire consuming their foes is very similar to the fire summoned by Elijah in 1 Kings chapter one. Shutting the sky from rain is nearly identical to the kind of prayer of faith that Elijah offered in 1 Kings 17. And turning water to blood along with other plagues parallels the plagues of Egypt in Exodus chapter seven through chapter 12. So there's something about these two witnesses that connects them to the Old Testament prophetic model. Now the proclamation ministry of these witnesses is substantial. And it reaches its conclusion in verse seven. When they have finished their testimony, what, what these witnesses are doing is proclaiming the gospel. They're proclaiming the witness of God in the world. But verse seven tells us, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Here we find our first reference to the beast. This image of a beast is connected to Daniel chapter seven where a worldly king and a worldly kingdom oppose the people of God. This beast, and we'll see this more next year as we study two beasts and the dragon, it, it represents the opposition of the world and even will be called Babylon later on in the book of Revelation. So what John sees is these witnesses are being opposed by an otherworldly force that has worldly application. John is recording what he sees as it relates to the message. Not necessarily a timeline, as we'll see in a moment. John is, again, collapsing images. In verse 8, we find that the, these witnesses are killed. They don't succumb to the beast's seduction, but instead they're martyred. Verse eight, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. So this is in reference to Jerusalem, which is referred to as both Sodom and Egypt because of all of the historical and spiritual connections to those two particular cities. According to verses nine through 10, the world Peoples, tribes, languages, and nations rejoices over the death of these two witnesses because of the torment that they have been to those who dwell on the earth. Their message has been annoying and painful and hard and opposed, and when the two witnesses are finally silenced, the world rejoices. They're killed, and it would seem that their martyrdom marks a dark day. It would seem that the witnesses have lost, but not so fast. 
After three and a half days, according to verse 11, the witnesses are miraculously raised to life. Again, some take this to be literally three plus days. Others connect it to the three and a half years where it seems as though God's people have lost the battle under horrendous persecution. Regardless, verse 12, we find a loud voice saying, come up here, and just like Jesus, they are taken up from the earth as their enemies watch them. And in a similar fashion as Jesus' death, there's an earthquake. 7,000 people are killed. Many people are terrified. And they realize, the people realize, that they are on the wrong side of God's glory. So whether you take these two witnesses as literal people, or whether you think they symbolize the church, whether you think the temple is literally rebuilt or whether you think the temple is a figurative picture of the church, the message of these 13 verses needs to be fully understood. And it's this, listen carefully, God protects his people and the word from being defeated. God protects his people and the word from being defeated. Last week we needed to be reminded about the hopeful confliction that is the normal experience of Christians. And here we see that the plan of God for Christians in the world involves substantial opposition. Substantial opposition. Have you felt substantial opposition in the world? Do you sense it even more broadly? The text shows us here that God protects his people and he protects his message through suffering and through opposition. When we go back to the New Testament, this relates to the very commission that God gave to his disciples, that Jesus gave rather to his disciples. He said this in Acts chapter one and verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Here's another text, listen to John 15. This one is remarkable. Jesus says this to his disciples. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But when the, the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. What's he saying here? He's saying that Christians ought to expect in the world that there will be substantial opposition unless there's no distinction between the church and the world. This text reminds us that faithful witness is rarely affirmed and loved by the world in which we live. Now that shouldn't give you a persecution complex or to try to be a martyr 
but it should help you to live faithfully and confidently knowing that God protects his witness in the world and the standard for your success in the world is not does the world like the message of the gospel, but rather am I faithful to the gospel message that God has entrusted to me? The trick is how to endure and be faithful without letting your heart become so discouraged because how bleak the situation looks or by becoming just like the world in opposition. The key is to keep our heads as we remember who our king is and what the future involves. Martin Luther knew the fury of being opposed for the gospel. And he wrote these words in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. He wrote this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Wow. God preserves and protects his witness. Here's the second thing. We see in this text an unstoppable kingdom. The last section in Revelation chapter 11 is a glorious celebration of where history is headed. And verses 14 through 15 indicate that this happens again through judgment. We see it announced. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is to come. And then, in verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet. We've been waiting for this seventh trumpet, and finally this seventh trumpet is blown. Remember, these seven seals represent the culmination of God's plan. And it's as if in this moment we're taken to the top of the mountain of Revelation and we can see everything that's going to happen. This is a highlight of what is yet to come. Or James Hamilton in his commentary suggests that the structure of the book of Revelation is set up in what's called a chiastic structure. Or think of it like a, like a bent arrow, or put it like this, like a mountain, and these texts are building to a particular pivot point, and then the text will regress, go backwards, if you will, to repeat what's been previously said, and the apex of Revelation is found in verse 15, when it says this, there were loud voices in heaven saying, here it comes, here's the apex, this is what the book of Revelation is about. Listen carefully, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That, Christian, is the destination of Revelation. It is the destination of the world. It's announced, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is looking all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. It's a, a preview of what is yet to come. Verse 18, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped him, saying, they, they highlight his sovereignty, his judgment, his deliverance. Look at his sovereignty. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, or rather who is, 
and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. We see judgment, the nation's rage. It's similar to what we find in Psalm 2. But your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. And then we see deliverance. For rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So here we see, once again, God's sovereignty and judgment and deliverance. And it's captured in this singular statement of the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, the reason why that statement is important is this. Listen, God has a plan to defeat sin in the world. What's happening in our world right now is not the way it's supposed to be. And every funeral screams that. It reminds us there's something wrong with the world. Every broken relationship, every failed marriage, every crime that happens, just turn on the news. It screams, something is wrong. Something is wrong with the world. And the Bible tells us what's wrong with the world. It is the presence of sin. Started in the Garden of Eden, continued all the way now. But the message, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to die for our sins so that our atonement could be given to us and that there could be a divine exchange where God takes Jesus' righteousness and gives it to us, takes our sin and is given to him. So he takes our judgment so that those who receive Christ now are forgiven and are welcomed into the kingdom of God because they are righteous, but they aren't righteous because of what they've done. They're righteous because of what Jesus has done. So to be a Christian means that you've turned from your sins, you've invited Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, and so when a Christian hears, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, something within the Christian says, yes, that's what I'm talking about. That's the essence of where the gospel is meant to lead. Then, verse 19, God's temple in heaven was opened, the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. That may not mean to you what it would have meant in the first century because when that temple, those temple doors were not opened. People, you couldn't look in and see the ark of the covenant. There was only one person, one time a year, who saw that Ark of the Covenant. It was the high priest on the Day of Atonement when he went in to make sacrifice. That was secret. It was removed. And now the stunning reality is that God's temple is open and the Ark of the Covenant is seen. It'd be like, what? It's open? Like, what in the world? When we get to Revelation 22, we'll see it, that there's a new Jerusalem and there's no temple there. Because Jesus is the light of that city and the gates. There's no doors because it's all open all the time. It's such an otherworldly image because there's no need for barriers. There's no need for security. Everything is wide open because there's no sin. Why do you need doors when everybody's righteous? Nobody knocks, they just come in. Why? Because we're all family. There's no yours or mine or theirs. There's no about to protect my stuff, don't mess up my room. Like it's, there, there's, everything is absolutely perfect and our relationship with the creator now is restored to where it began in the Garden of Eden with perfect fellowship as God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day and that day has come and returned. What a day. 
There'll be peals of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, and heavy hail. So what do we do with this? What, what is this? How does this text, this really complicated text with lots of symbols, with lots of different perspectives, let me give you just four quick statements that I hope will encourage you. This text reminds us, Christian, that God has promised that he will empower you. Both Revelation and Jesus' words to his disciples remind us that encouragement, listen to me, doesn't come from the absence of suffering. Comfort doesn't come from what isn't happening to you. Comfort comes because of who is with you. Comfort comes from God's ability to help you, to empower you, and to walk with you. The reason for the sending of the Holy Spirit is to be both our comforter and our enabler. So are you facing hardship and you don't know what to do? That's not a bad place to be if you're a Christian because God has promised he's gonna help you. The issue is not whether or not God can help you. He will help you. The issue is whether or not you believe that he will. Secondly, not only God will empower you, secondly, listen to me, Satan will not defeat you. The track record of God is to rescue his people from the devices of Satan. Now hear me, that doesn't mean that it's never going to look bleak or dark, but part of the reason we have revelation in our Bible is to remind us what Paul says in Romans 6, 18. Hear it, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. We need those words because there's a lot of times where it feels like, yeah, we're getting crushed under Satan's feet. Jesus reminds us there's coming a day when the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God will empower you. Satan will not defeat you. Third, the church is unstoppable. The people of God, the church are far from perfect our track record is often spotty when it comes to faithfulness, but Jesus made a promise, and it sounds like this. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Sunday after Sunday, we gather to proclaim the message that Jesus rescues people from the clutches of the enemy. Some of you need to be encouraged today. Listen, God's gonna help you. Satan's not gonna defeat you. The church and its message is not unstoppable. And here's the fourth encouragement. It's not long now. We're one week closer to Jesus coming back. The book of Revelation calls us to faithfulness and endurance and patience. Faithfulness, endurance, and patience. And one of the ways that we help one another is by reminding each other that we're closer now than we've ever been. The king is going to return and it won't be long now. And so with the writer of Hebrews, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to be reminded that there's coming a day when it's gonna be announced. The kingdom of this world 
has become the kingdom of our Lord in Christ. That day is gonna come. It's not yet, but we're one week closer than we were last Sunday. And so what do we do? We work for another six days, and if he doesn't return, we come back and encourage one another, and we just keep doing that week after week after week after week, knowing that God has made a promise that he faithfully will preserve his witness all the way to the end. Oh Lord Jesus, I pray that you would grant comfort and help to brothers and sisters hearing this message today who need reassurance that there is a kingdom that is coming. God, help us to set our eyes on that kingdom, on that realm by which we define our actions and our obedience. Grant us grace and deep, deep encouragement today, Lord, as we consider what this text means and how it applies in our lives. Thank you, God, that you're gonna empower us. Thank you that the devil is not going to win. Thank you that the church is not stoppable. Even broken churches is not, we're not stoppable because you're the one who's ordained it and it's not long now. So God, help us. Help us to be faithful, keeping our eyes on that prize. Thank you, Jesus, that our hope and our trust is not in ourselves, but in you. Let me pray this in the name of our King, who's coming soon, in Jesus' name.